And welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I am your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante. Welcome back, you guys. And uh, we have an excellent guest on our show today. Uh, his name is Dr. Nathan Hirschberger, and we are glad to have him here. He just graduated from a dual program in family medicine and neuromusculoskeletal medicine. But we are talking today about something that needs more discussion, and that is obesity. We're going to get to what our current thoughts are on obesity and kind of the background with the hopes that we can talk about where we're wrong. <laughs> I know that's a heavy thought, and the pun was totally intended there. Welcome, Dr. Nathan. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Go ahead, Dr. Dante. Let's, let, let, let's lay out the line a little bit. There's a, there's a big problem with obesity, and I don't mean the pun, but there's no way to dodge it because it's right there because it's that big. That might have been a pun. The, <laughs> obesity has been an issue in our environment for not that long, actually. Like, if you look at the sum total of human experience, um, we had what? There's four horsemen, right? There's what? War. There's yep. plague. Mm -hmm. There's uh, hold up, war, plague, death, and then right. there's famine. Obesity was never one of them, but now, like, looking at how things are playing out now, man, you know what I mean? It's, I feel like we got new horsemen, or I don't know if they're horses. Maybe they're hippopotamuses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we just went there. That's the truth. Uh, but but that that's is... the situation, right? Like, obesity is a really big deal now, and it really wasn't until relatively recently. We talk about, we talk about pathologies of the good times, right? Like, mm -hmm. we are privileged to have the problem of obesity. Because that means that we are in such a good place as a as a species that we get to get fat. You know how crazy that is? That's pretty damn well, crazy. It's not since what was the crazy. the nineteen twenties when we had the Dust Bowl famine, right? Uh, so it's it's been nearly a hundred years since there has been any sort of famine in the United States. It's not to say there's not famine in other countries in the world, but we have been so successful with our agribusiness that we are able to produce crops in just about every type of environment now precisely like think about it like this once upon a time man if the grain supplies went bad then you have like actually because the grain supplies went bad rome went from a republic to an empire and all of the things therein you know what i mean like that that level of craziness we, we don't face that anymore right but now we have obesity and it's a real problem and it's we got to figure out how the hell like what happened so what first of all what do we do for obesity exactly what are we doing for obesity <laughs> go ahead Dan. let us know <laughs> so basically <laughs> welcome to know, the show <laughs> thank you um so the common wisdom has been you know if you're obese all you have to do is just it's you know it's because you've eaten too much and you haven't exercised enough so obviously you must eat less and move more you must some, somehow be lazy huh yeah exactly this is this is your sedentary lifestyle you're just not you're not moving enough and you're eating way too much you're on the couch all day with that bag of potato chips and that's all you got right and it's a clean picture like especially what i just said that we have uh, pathologies of affluence right so maybe we're or maybe we're not moving enough if if i can do everything i need to do to feed my family sitting on a desk taking care of people on the phone because COVID times and telecommunications, like, do I really have to move that much? Likewise, pie is delicious. So maybe I want to eat a lot of pie, but if it's too much, exactly. you know, I mean, it's, there's a logic to that idea, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems obvious, right? It's, it, well, I mean, it's, it's, it seems obvious. Everybody like really believes this, that all you have to do is just, you know, you're, you're just not, you know, moving enough and you're eating too much. But I, you know, I, there's, there's a very strong example of, of why that that's not necessarily true. Um, and that if you take a look at the average weight of a baby now, as compared to, oh, let's say 70 years ago, a six month old baby is, is quite a bit larger. Now, is that baby just not moving enough? Does that even make sense? It makes zero sense, right? <laughs> right. Maybe so, by the time they're six months old, they're getting into everything, right? So I, I so, you know, so I'm not, I, context. Six yeah. months old. Uh, saying this as, so James, your kids are, you have, you have multiple kids. I got my, I got mine. Nathan, you don't have any children, right? 
Oh no, not for me. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, those first, like, um, my, my, my pediatrician told me and my wife while we're like taking care of my kid, he goes, uh, sorry, she goes, just, I want you guys to remember food before one is just for fun. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cute. I'll keep that. But yeah, the, the like idea that. that all of the calories the kid is getting prior to one years of age, they're essentially, it's essentially breast milk or if not breast milk, like the, the formula equivalents, right? Right. And that's relatively constant across humans or across body types. You know what I mean? So the, the idea that they don't exercise enough, it's, it's almost like a non-issue because they <laughs> have make a constant food source. It's, it's like, there's no variance. Yeah. I haven't seen many six month olds on a treadmill. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I will say when I, when I came home from one of my first conferences, my kid was four months old. I did get him like a little like stress ball barbell. Oh, <laughs> yeah, get him yeah. <laughs> early. I'm just saying, man, eat and go deadlift. Exactly. <laughs> so, so if, if it's not that the kids, you know, aren't, aren't exercising enough because that, that, that doesn't even make sense. That part of it, you know, I mean, logically it just doesn't make sense. Um, so why are, why aren't babies bigger now? Why, why are some babies considered obese? You know, and it, it's not for lack of exercise. So it, it must be something else. It must be something that they're taking in exactly. or that their, their mothers are producing that's causing their body size to increase. Exactly. It's not stature. It's just weight, right? Yeah. It's just weight. It, yeah. You're, you're, you're not looking at like I said, you're not seeing babies on treadmills exercising or, or lacking in exercising. I feel like I need to run a YouTube query for babies on treadmills now just to fact check this one. <laughs> that sounds like it needs to be a meme right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, obviously it's something it, it has to it obviously it has to be something to do with nutrition and, and, and how that's either, you know, affected their biology or just physically the type of food that they're taking in. And that's, that's what's causing them to weigh more as babies. So talking about nutrition, then we're, we're talking about the current guidelines from the federal government that you see um, mm -hmm. uh, sponsored by the American Heart Association and the Mer American Diabetic Association and other organizations. Uh, and we've gone through a number of iterations of these things, right? We've had the, yeah. the uh, food pyramid. Now we have the fill your plate uh, and proportions on your plate. What do those guidelines look like for us? Well, I mean, the original, you know, food pyramid was based on a diet heavy in carbohydrates and and grains and and potato things like that. And lots so, of bread and pasta, right? Basically, yes, right. And you know, if you think about that, that was cheap food, easily produced and, and easily made, right? You know, exactly. You a PB and J is a lot easier to cook than a, a chicken on a, a rotisserie. Exactly. I'm just saying one, you need to bake and you need to grind up, have a flour mill to go to the miller. There's a windmill and stuff. The other one, you take a bird and throw it in a fire. <laughs> this is true. But when you have someone who can just make wonder bread for you, you don't even have to have a grindstone anymore. Do you? That's a good point. I I might have to return the grindstone right bought from Amazon then, but okay, fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Yeah. So yeah, they're diets that are heavy what in carbohydrates and grains, and and you know we tell people not to eat saturated fat and cholesterol because it causes heart disease, and um you know keep keep you know your your proteins down a little bit you know make it vegetable heavy carbohydrate heavy unsaturated fats. That that uh, that's plant, kind plant of plant-based orange type diets, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you know was that, that would what that would not just limit the obesity thing, but also the heart disease thing, right? It was exactly that was supposed to be like the like if if humans had a diet, that was supposed to be our move. Like here's how human do. Yeah, exactly. But has that diet worked for us at all? Well, uh, looking at the trends of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and uh, now into the 2000s, it doesn't seem to be working as well as we thought it would, does it? Well. You know, as evidenced by the fact that they had to keep changing the food pyramid, and now it's that plate. So obviously, the original dietary recommendations were insufficient. It's more like a food lava lamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, man, if you're gonna keep moving the target, you know, what I mean, you're, you're in a fluid state. You're a goddamn lava lamp. <laughs> so, 
Food lava lamp. So now I'm getting hungry. <laughs> I do want to throw a bird into a fire, but back on topic. So fine, we get this food pyramid. And honestly, so the food pyramid was based off of recommendations that were instituted in the United States in 1976. There was a very big deal. It was a very big year for nutritional sciences in this country because of all the weird political stuff that happened in the 50s and 60s. But 1976, we make a food pyramid. Uh, we make a claim. We make a position on nutrition. About four years later, we roll out the beginnings of the food pyramid. By 1992-94, we implement something broad. And then we've had, what, it's 2020 right now. It's 2020. We've had 30 years of targeted, deliberate intervention on the American habit. and what have we got to show for it? A lot more obese people. The biggest failed experiment in the history of failed experiments. Exactly. I'm trying to find something bigger and I'm having trouble actually. But that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's not even just a problem in our own country. We, we have, Americans have successfully exported obesity to the whole world where, you know, I mean, in, in poorer nations, um, developing ones, people weren't just naturally obese. Like when, when they're very poor, they were thinner. Right. Um, but, how is it that in this country, the, the poorest among us are the biggest? And that's a very big question. I remember during my med school days, um, I went to med school in Philly, and all of our student clinics were in inner cities. Yeah. And obesity was a huge, huge issue. But then if you went to any of the stores, they had a lot of corner grocery stores mm -hmm. where you could buy all sorts of stuff, but nothing was healthy. And I remember talking to some inner city friends and said, well, you know, you've got You've got this discount produce place just down the road a little bit. And they would say, well, I, I can't carry back the produce on the bus. It's just not capable. Right. But I can carry a bag of potato chips. Yeah, One yeah. of my colleagues was talking about social determinants of health. It's, it's, a, it's a phrasing I'm not familiar with until maybe a little chatting with her more. But yeah, obesity, it, it looks like obesity is almost a pathology of, you know, of, of, the, of the West in general. But it hits hardest in like the lower your... The lower your household income, the harder you're hit mm -hmm. by this obesity thing. It's almost like it's like it's almost a privilege to be uh, to be not obese with the yeah, way things are set up. Exactly. Well, and I, I mean, if if just you know taking that example, it, it's it's almost like you know the, the poorer you are, the the cheaper food you're going to be buying, right? It, it, then is it the cheaper food that's making you fat? Right. But that's weird right. because the cheaper food, right? We're talking specifically like. I can uh -huh. get um, a box of spaghetti to feed my family. Like, like looking at my own math and home economics, I can get a box of spaghetti that's good to feed my whole family for like a day, maybe two days meals with leftovers mm -hmm. um, for about 79 cents. Exactly. And the food pyramid, remember, the, for those who – I don't know what year it is anymore sometimes. So, folks, if you've never seen the food pyramid, it looks like a pyramid, and the bottom of it – it's like a mountain of grains. Rice, was, wheat, corn, the whole bit. Right, right. And the idea was that if your diet was primarily made of this, then you're good to go. So that's that's in line with that thought process, right? 79 cents for a big old, big old box of spaghetti. Make some of that up, throw some salt, have a good day. Mm -hmm. My family's fed. I should be good. But right. then... You shouldn't be fat by eating that. No, right. uh, not according to the first food pyramid. You should not have been fat by eating that. Not according to the grain lobbies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> man, it's too damn early for you to be firing shots, man. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> Bam! But, oh my god! But we we say this because, in all seriousness, with the way that that pyramid is designed, with the behaviors and the economic situations that came out as a consequence of that pyramid, right? What? Yes. If you say that grain is what the foundation is supposed to be then that means that that's what you subsidize. That's what you incentivize people to purchase. And if I only have the choice between what a little bit of meat and a little bit of, and a lot, a bit of pasta and the pasta is cheap and apparently it's good for me. Of course, I'm going to buy the damn pasta. Absolutely. And remember, don't, don't eat saturated fat. That was also part of it as well. Right. You know, because yeah, back sure. in the, back so in no the seventies, no lard. Exactly. Don't eat that. It raises your cholesterol, and that causes heart disease and heart attacks. It's been um, definitively proven. Right. Time, remember, back in the day, <laughs> Time Magazine actually put out that, that like, famous, like, yes. was one of their most, yeah, like, the Surgeon General was on it, yes. Yeah, it was the one with the, um, it was the, um, like, the, the face with the tobacco smoke, right? Uh, with, yes. like, the cigarette, but instead of a cigarette, it was, like, so, uh, what the hell, like, a 
thing of butter or something. Basically, it made, it made the visual equivalence of if you eat saturated fat, you're doing as much damage as if you're smoking. Yes. So don't do it. Yes. Don't do it. We, they always say, for sure. yeah, artery clogging saturated fats, which I just always go, oh my God, that doesn't right. even make sense. But so look, we've, we've had those <laughs> rules, we've had those guidelines for like a solid 30 years, man. And Yeah. And, and our patients were following other guidelines for things like high blood pressure, they were taking their medicines and their blood pressures were coming down. But, um, but you know, we, we, we were saying that, well, they're just not following our dietary advice. That's why they're getting fat. They're lying to us about that, but they were taking our advice when it was, you know, managing their other diseases. So, and there we go. It's going back to, um, putting all the blame on, uh, the patient who was doing what they were told to, but it wasn't working. So it must, it must be their fault. It couldn't be, that the advice they were receiving was faulty, could it? Yeah, or, or they just were not following that part of the advice. <laughs> but so I actually took that seriously um, when I when I thought that that was the claim. I was like, all right, maybe our patients actually aren't listening to us. Because look, man, if you're going to make a hypothesis, you got to test it, right? Exactly. So right. I actually right. um, it was it was one of the first things I was, one of the first things I did as a not resident. Um, for the record, resident means a doctor in slavery. So just. Oh my goodness. 100%. I took my resources, I used my office and just started gathering data. There's actually econometric data on purchasing patterns um, for the United States, which is really cool to watch. So one of the things I learned as a methodology is don't trust doctors, don't trust pharmacology in regards to reporting their own industry because they don't have the means to forget about dishonesty and corruption or, or honesty uh, for the equivalent is we don't have the way to measure the data. However, um, if you go by uh, economic data and banking data, you can actually track insurance maneuvers and food and purchasing patterns in a way that just can't be denied. Like if they bought it, they bought it. Exactly. So if you make the assumption that you're consuming the things you're purchasing as far as foodstuffs, then based on the real-world data from 1990 to 2016, Americans were actually listening. Like, uh, was it? Saturated fat consumption just started to trickle down bit by bit by bit. Polyunsaturated fat went up bit by bit by bit. Carbs actually remained steady, which is really weird. But the cool thing was after 1994, um, non-nutritive snacks went up phenomenally. Like, there's this company called Snackwell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they yeah. make the cookies. Those guys. The whole point of snack well was, got it, fat is bad, but fat is delicious. What if we figured out how to make a low-fat snack that tastes good? They came out with that nasty chocolate cookie in 1994. And ever since that timeline, like 1994 is the T0, the rate of that industry went up bit by bit by bit. And then it skyrocketed after like the 2000s. All this to say, we told them not to eat fat. They're not eating fat. We told them not to eat saturated fat. They bought some cookies. And then... Like they're doing it. We can't, I can't say they're not doing it because I got the data right in front of my face. Actually, we're doing this over Zencraft, right? I actually have my old PowerPoint with this data set in front of me. That's why I have these numbers. <laughs> they were actually doing it and it wasn't doing it. And the scary thing is to take that exact curve and match it to the rate of obesity. And here's the thing. Um, I don't actually care if you're obese. Um, like your body, have fun, do your thing. But if that obesity is screwing with you, then that matters. Like, the obesity curve went up, but just as importantly, the um, the end products of obesity and untreated metabolic disease went up, like dialysis went up, heart disease, yeah. all that type of stuff. Did some weird stuff. And all those curves line up in a way that is, again, correlative, not causative. Yes. But man, at some point, you got to say we got to lead. It definitely gives us some guidance of what we need to look at for sure. So then, you know, our patients come to us and say, all right, my health is not doing well and I'm obese. What do I do? Right. And so then we say, oh, we'll just eat less. So perhaps we need to, to take a take a pause, guys, and figure out because it's, it's worth mentioning. We should probably lay out how the hell did we even get here? Here's a fun fact. Innovate Fort Worth is the podcast to listen to if you want to hear stories of innovation from the entrepreneurs who make it happen. Every other week, host Cameron Cushman talks to a different entrepreneur about what they do and why Fort Worth, Texas is the place to be. To enjoy this podcast, simply search for it wherever you're listening now. That's Innovate Fort Worth on your favorite podcasting app. 
New episodes every other Tuesday. All right, so we've established what we are currently telling people to do and that it's not working. And that's a problem. So now we have to figure out why it's not working and where do we go from there? Now, this is actually what we brought Nathan here for. Uh, sorry, Dr. Hirschberger, because he earned that. <laughs> so, I mean, look, it's we, we know him enough to call him Nathan, obviously. But <laughs> if we're going to figure out why it's not working one of the most useful things to do uh back uh, in back in medicine is something called an m&m like a morbidity and mortality right not m&ms like the chocolate anyway an m&m is a good idea so let's do the equivalent of a morbidity and mortality for the sake of this whole damn intervention nathan why don't you walk us through a bit of how the hell did we even get here so yeah we we, we already talked about you know like we're saying eat less move more and, you know, we basically said, well, you know, people are just sedentary. That's why they're gaining weight and they're eating too much. But, you know, where's, where did that part of the, you know, eat less come from? And um, somewhere along the way, um, a, a pound of fat was calculated to equal 3,500 kilocalories. And so somebody came up with a bright idea that that means we just need to tell people to eat 500 calories less a week, uh, less a day, sorry, less a day. Yeah, 500 less and, a day times a week, a pound a week, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then you lose yeah. a pound a week. Yeah, so that, that makes sense, right? Um, yeah, yeah, let's but, go with that. You know, has, yeah, has like that's like basic arithmetic, yeah. If you cut out five, yeah. I, you know, I even had one of my attendings tell me one time, um, because we were having this discussion, and I was like, well, this is more of an estimate, right? And he's like, no, it's exactly that. And I was like, well, where did it come from? And so, you know, there, this, uh, this great book I read by Zoe Harcombe, um, called the obesity epidemic. She actually does go into where this calculation came from, and and basically um, it was that one uh, one pound of fat is uh, uh, equal to four hundred and fifty four grams. Okay. And then fat has nine calories per gram, and that is um, the universally accepted conversion. And that human fat is approximately 87% lipid. It's a widely accepted fact. So, um, what? So the calculation then is one pound equals 454 grams times 87% equals 395 grams. So that's the amount of fat minus the water. And then you mm -hmm. multiply that by nine kilocalories per gram, and you get 3,500 kilocalories. So that's where that came from. But was this empirically measured? Is is the is the bigger question. And well, that, um, that seems a bit spurious to me. I mean, we, we talk about the average temperature of the body being 98.6, but that doesn't mean everyone is 98.6. That means the average person may be 98.6 when you measure it under normal circumstances. Yeah. And so then, then you have to say, well, you know, each different type of fat, whether it's saturated, unsaturated, um, you know, if there's less, you know, hydrogens in it and it becomes an unsaturated fat, there's less energy in that to break apart. So even the fats, you know, your, your fat cells are made up of different amounts of either saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, whatever, um, sterols and all that stuff. And so each pound of fat is going to weigh, weigh a little bit different and it's going to have a different amount of kilocalories in it. And then that depends on the constituent fats. So if it's a, if it's a, mm -hmm. an adipose tissue, tissue, lipid, lipid tissue, and there are some, um, unsaturated fats and there's some saturated fats or variations of those. And it's not even just saturated fat has many variations. There's steric. Acid, exactly. There's exactly. In there. However many carbons there are on, how long the fat is that changes the amount of, 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 um, kilocalories that's going to be in that. So let's say you, you have a whole bunch of very long saturated, um, fats, long chain saturated fats. You're going to have a lot more energy in that same pound versus somebody that has shorter chained ones or more unsaturated, right? So just applying this, this, oh, it's 3,500 kilocalories for every single person, every single pound of fat go. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's it doesn't, no. you know, it, it, it sounds, it sounds nice, but it's, it's, it's not right. That makes me yeah. think of something we do in physics, like when we're teaching 
high school kids physics you go by the way in ideal situations in perfect conditions blah 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 and then you have to remind them by the way if you're going to become an engineer man all those ideal conditions go the hell away like air resistance wear and tear friction how drunk the operator is all that stuff matters <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what i mean <laughs> totally <laughs> but it's the same thing with this idea empirically that actually like that calculation the stoichiometry of that is elegant it's of course yeah it's, it sounds lovely right but you know the original calculation had ranges it had you know like it could be from this to this so why so did they and averages yes so they removed it but they didn't just remove it they chose the higher estimate sometimes and then they chose the lower estimate on others and that's where they came to this nice figure but let's say you change because there's like about uh, like so one of us said the original calculation um in the book um 87 fat of adipose tissue being 80 percent 87 fat came from a german article in 1911 and um and the adipose tissue could be anywhere from 72 to 80 percent fat so that's number one so, but okay, they chose 87%. Yeah, it's a very big difference, right? And and those small percentage differences over many, many fat cells are going to give you a, a much different number. And then, let's see, in 1901, um, carbohydrate, protein, and fat were estimated to have 4.1, 4.1, and 9.3 calories per gram. Um, and then... Um, and I think it's important that you point out that they were yeah. estimates, they were estimates, exactly. Um, and then in 2009, um, fat was estimated to be 8.7 calories per gram. So if you take one extreme, basically, the, and this is right from Zoe Harcom's book, you know, um, if you take one of the extremes, um, you end up getting a pound of fat being 2,843 kilocalories. And then if you go the other way, it's slightly larger than 3,500 kilocalories, right? If you take the other extremes the other direction. So, so we're, we're talking about at least a 700 calorie difference from both yeah. extremes. Yeah. So now, now we were just telling people to eat 500 kilocalories less a day, right? And then multiply it over the week, that's 3,500. So if you think about it, if you take those higher amounts and it's, you know, it's, it's a 2,800 kilocalories per pound of fat, they have to eat a lot less than 500. Right, because if, you if, take, you, if you're taking exactly. it off of that top end, you're not even getting to the bottom end. No, actually, you would even even losing even removing that 500 kilocalories a day. If you had that that uh, that first estimate, you'd still be gaining weight. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so wait, so what? This so, is the reason why a bunch of us are still fat is because we can't do basic arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, math is hard. So, <laughs> but is it that easy? Like, is is, is that also, is it, is this an error of arithmetic? Maybe we should be okay. Maybe if we cut out a thousand calories, maybe that would yeah. work. Then. But see, that doesn't work either, and we know that because back in what what year was the starvation experiment? Ansel Keys' starvation experiment. It was one of the first ones he did. He's um a researcher that everybody should learn about and throw darts at. Um, <laughs> 1944. Okay. So his first experiment, the starvation experiment was clinically so relevant and it was done very well. Um, and, um, it was started right after world war II. Um, food rationing was a thing back then and they needed to find out what happens when people don't eat enough. What happens when they starve? What's the minimum so amount of, of food they need? Who were starving, yeah. right? Yeah. So what's the minimum amount of food people need to not die, not starve, uh, to survive? And it didn't, it wasn't the minimum amount to like, you know, for good health. It was, you know, they're just looking at, you know, so what happens when we starve people? And, that, and, and it was, it's a good question. And I'm glad that it was um, put to an experiment like this. So basically they took these conscientious objectors to World War II and they starved them. And they, how nice they watched what happened. And, um, it, there were four phases to this experiment. Um, they did this sort of like, uh, this phase where they had to meet a certain amount just to make sure that their metabolisms, you know, they, 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 they were, that was the first couple of weeks, make sure their metabolisms mm -hmm. were good and things like that. And then they starved them. 
And then they did a refeeding phase where they would only let them eat certain things. And then they did a refeeding phase where they would just eat whatever they wanted. So what do you guys think happened in this experiment? Um, I'm thinking that some people went absolutely insane and couldn't couldn't uh, finish. <laughs> yes, there were some people that didn't that didn't finish the experiment. Um, but but more importantly, anyone who went back to the refeeding uh -huh. gained either all of the weight back that they lost or more than they had lost. Exactly. So at the end of the experiment, um, they were gaining about 10% 10, uh, 10 more weight than they had started with just because they starved themselves. And um, one person went uh, insane and was caught eating the flesh of another human. That was that was probably one of the better parts of the experiment. And yeah, then that's um, who it was. That, that's <laughs> who they were eating. Yeah, yeah. The the men were plagued with anxiety and depression, and they were so very hyper focused on food. Um, and so, um, let's talk about what what you know the calorie count that they were they were starving them with. Um, it was one thousand five hundred calories, which, which is what some people would be eating now for a diet. Exactly. And this was starving these people, turning some of them insane, making them anxious and depressed. And at the end of it, they were gaining more weight than they had started with. Let's put that into some context, actually. The, the nutritional guidelines for the United States will say that um, they base all of our dietary percentages off of uh, RDA of, what, 2,000 calories per day? About, yes. Just about 2,000 calories per day. And if you chop out 500 calories as the idea of how much fat to uh, how many calories to cut out to lose a pound of fat a week that's 500 calories that puts you at 1500 which is the starvation experiment that's kind of cool <laughs> yeah right that's not, that's not like how yeah. to make a murderer <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly oh so. that sounds like the next horror horror flick <laughs> I'm just saying, Wendigos were a thing. I guess Wendigos were just really hungry people. Uh, I guess Michael Myers had been in starvation mode. Uh, I, he probably was. I, I know there were some times in residency where I was in starvation mode. Yeah, for various reasons. <laughs> you were an angry resident. Uh, I mean... Yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah, you, you graduated. It's okay. <laughs> He's, he's no longer a serving so, resident, so we're good. Exactly. <laughs> so the takeaways from that whole experiment was that, one, they gained all this weight back. So the body overcomes the calorie deficit, the starvation calorie deficit, by turning down metabolism more to compensate for the, the lesser food that, that they were eating. And if you think about it, that's that's a good thing. Like evolutionarily, that's a really good thing um, because – you know, there are times that we went through feast and times we went through famine as a species. And if the body didn't have that sort of mechanism to compensate for that time, um, we would have died out as a species. Long ago. Long ago. And since the Dust Bowl era, 80, mm -hmm. 90 years ago, since we've had any significant famine in the United States, and granted other, uh, other countries still face that, and the third world countries do, but we don't have to deal with those kinds of cycles anymore because of refrigeration and food preservation and improved efficiency with agriculture. So we we're facing a, tr uh, uh, an opposite problem then uh, a lack of famine problem. Exactly. So um, there were a couple other um, good points that came out of this experiment too. Um, basically people became obsessed with food. Um, they became tired all the time. Um, and, the, the, they had lower metabolisms at the end of this that just basically stayed with them long into the recovery phase where they were allowed to eat whatever they wanted, which hence the lower metabolism, all of a sudden all this extra food and they gained more weight back. And that um, it was restoration of calories, not vitamins and protein supplements. So think like Ensure, we tell you know some people to eat those things, but right. it, it was really calorie restoration, not the Ensure, not 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 the vitamins and proteins yeah, that made them better. So we, we do need a certain amount of calories every day, but you know it's it, it, it that that so your your metabolism doesn't go down. Um, there was one other really interesting thing thing with this though, and. Um, what they found was that um, your body will give up lean muscle tissue first um, before it gets rid of fat. And so how many of our patients do we walk around with that have these little wimpy muscles 
little stick legs and these huge bellies, right? Right, it, right. It, and they have easier to get rid of. It's really easier for the body to dispose of lean muscle mass than it is for fat, right? Yes, because the lean muscle mass takes so much energy to maintain. It's funny you say it exactly the way you do, just because um, you you described a Cushingoid phenomenon very inadvertently elegantly, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess you so. have a little puny <laughs> arms, little puny legs, you know what I mean? And you end up with, with the girth, essentially. And you yes. look like something out of near automata, like a little stubby robot thing. But mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that's part of why Cushing's looks the way it does. It's because what? You end up with chronically profoundly high cortisol. And one of the things cortisol as a hormone does is it tells your body one, times are rough right now. In the short term, what cortisol does is it tells you to recruit extra resources, you know, burn burn hot. But if cortisol runs high for a prolonged period, it starts to scavenge for resources. And for whatever reason, I don't know the evolutionary bio behind this idea, but for some reason, cortisol, when our body is marinating in it chronically, it creates the signal to go, got it, burn the house down, take the protein. And then you think about that and go, imagine how stressful it is to be in a deficit in calories when as you said, calories are what you need to function. To be in a calorie-restricted strait is god-awfully stressful, especially if you take that over a long time. So going on this biological trip that we're on, then why is it, from a biological standpoint, that low-fat recommendations don't work? I know that's a heavy, that's a heavy question. That's that's a really heavy question, and um, yeah, and I think I think you're getting to the main point is that well, we we first have to go back and you know we we were telling people that all calories were equal, and if all calories are equal, um, and saturated fat's bad, don't eat that because it raises cholesterol. So eat more carb. Yeah, because um, and all calories are equal. Calories, right? Yeah, we just want to get rid of the high calorie sources. Yeah, so I I, I think we'll be able to answer that question, but I think we have to talk about. Um, you know, this whole, this whole idea of like these calories now. So we know that you need a certain amount every day and then, you know, all calories are equal, right? And like, where did that come from? Um, you know, and so, so let's do it basically. Yeah, let's do it. So basically, um, we tell people that all the calories you eat are used to do work and, and all calories are equivalent, right? Right. Except that saturated fat's bad. So don't eat that. But everything Um, else is fine. But everything else is fine. Eat all the carbs you want, hence that food pyramid. There right? is no war in Boston <laughs> <and> Plague. <laughs> as many so, and ding-dongs as you can get, you're good. Yeah. So if all calories are equal and all of that's used to do work, you know, just, you know, that was the whole just reduce these calories and you'll be fine. You'll just lose weight 500 a day. That's 3,500 a week. You'll lose a pound every single week. Life will be good. But where did this, where did this thought come from that all these calories are equal? You know, and that and that all the calories you put in your body are used to do work. Well, that's that's the question. If I remember correctly, and I'll be honest, I think you might know this one better than I do. So call me out if I if I trip up on this. Once upon a time, we developed the technique for develop for figuring out how much energy is in a given food substance, like what bomb calorimetry, right? We put the thing into this weird oven-looking thing. Yeah, it's called a doer, actually. There you go. Um, and physical chemists uses use it. Um, and it's it it's so that they can, they, they combust what's in it and then they measure the amount of energy that's released from the combustion. Yes. So you basically blow up food and then measure how much heat comes from blowing up that particular food. And that tells you how much energy was stored in that food. Yes. And they have to do it in the doer basically. Like it's, it's like your Yeti cup, right? It's an insulated cup, right? That's what this thing is so that no energy gets in and no energy gets out. And uh, folks don't try this at home. (laughs) Yeah, please don't. (laughs) Please don't use your so, Yeti to make a bomb color, a duo, mm-hmm. that thing. Don't, yeah. Yeah. So, so they were doing it in, in this, this very, this, this closed environment. And that way, all of the energy that was released from the reaction, they could measure. Um, and that's not that bad of a methodology, actually. That, that makes into, from a purely mm-hmm. physical chemistry, physics sense, that makes sense, right? If food has energy, yeah. let's just see how much energy is in the food and burn the damn thing. Yeah. Exactly. So this, this, these, these meals have this many calories in it and this, this meal has this many calories in it. And so just reduce your total number of calories by, by that much. And we, we know how much calories are in it because we can put it in this fun little machine, explode it, 
measure the energy in it. I mean, if we could use government money to, to like fund grants uh, for exploding food, that's pretty cool. So I, I can understand the incentive. <laughs> like, you ever just want to blow up a Big Mac and see what happens? <laughs> you might get a mushroom cloud out of that. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but okay, so but but this method, it's and let's make it very clear in case the audience didn't notice it yet. We're all, the three of us here are coming from a similar page in this. We're, we're trying to walk through an argument in order to map out, one, how we got here, right? But that calorie idea, as elegant as it was from a pure, like, really cool tech chemistry standpoint, there's a crucial step that was missing. Like, there's, there's, there's certain laws and universals of just how crap works that aren't taken mm-hmm. into consideration if all you do is go... Got it. If we explode the Big Mac, it has this many calories. Eat half a Big Mac instead. Well, it exactly. completely ignores the fact that our body is not a bomb color emitter. Yes, exactly. So, and the, 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 where that comes from is, you know, everybody says, oh, calories in equals calories out. And so it, it came from this idea that if we explode this food, this is the amount of calories in. If I put that in my body, all those calories are used to do work. And that's not right, is it? It's 100% not right. It, it literally, like... I, you know, I mean, people say, oh, that's thermodynamics, man. And I go, wow, that totally violates the first law of thermodynamics if you actually understand them, um, what you just said. So, <laughs> so how about this? Um, What's the first law of thermodynamics? Energy can't be created or destroyed, right? Sure. Right. Okay. So that's a bastardization of the first law of thermodynamics. Um, really, the first law of therm- thermodynamics is talking about, you know, the, the uh, internal energy of, of this system. And it's going to say that in a closed system that's in thermodynamic equilibrium, the total energy is conserved. And you're like, well, what does that even mean, right? It's it, it's, it's so much easier to say, well, energy can't be created or destroyed. Those sort of sound alike, right? Yeah. Only if you ignore like, the first half of the sentence with the big scary words, man. <laughs> yeah. So if we just cut out the first two caveats on that and say total energy is conserved, well, energy cannot be created or destroyed. But that first law only applies to a closed system in thermodynamic equilibrium. And the last time I checked, the only one of those that I know of right now is the entire universe. So it is true that the, you know, from the Big Bang, the energy that was present at that time is the energy that is still present now. But but uh, are you comparing your own body and saying, oh, my body is a closed system like the universe is a closed system? Yeah, the only time our body is in thermodynamic equilibrium with the environment is when we're dead. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> For the record, that's, that's, not, that's, that's actually not, a, that's not an insult. That is actually a mathematically, physically sound sentence to be. <laughs> yes. Just in case folks <laughs> yeah. don't really appreciate so, that. That is the only way to so, be. Yeah. So, and then the other thing is, you know, are we a closed system then? And and I say absolutely not. Um, and we have a great example of how we're not a closed system. We do lose heat to our environment. As a matter of fact, the, the job of brown fat in a baby is literally to do that, is to just lose heat to the environment to keep to keep the baby warm. Right. You know, if, if you do an infrared camera at night and point it at a person, what does that person look like? A They're target. glowing. I mean, yeah, they glow. A target, exactly, a target, a glowing target. And the reason is because they are putting off, our bodies are putting off heat. Exactly. We're losing heat to our environment. We interact with our environment all the time. And um, if if you just look at it, like like take something like vitamin D, um, you, you know, that's made from something called 7-D-hydrocholesterol, and it takes on energy from the sun and then converts to vitamin D. So in that way, it's not that's not a ton of like, you know, you, energy that we're going to use to do work, but it is, it is energy to do a chemical reaction in our body. That's not coming just from the food that we eat. So we're interacting with our environment in multiple ways. We even have things called like chromophores in the body. Um, some of the, um, the heme proteins, um, they, they also take on energy in, in the, in the, uh, in the form of like photons mm-hmm. from the sun. Right. So the, you know, not to get too heavy into that, but we interact with our environment. We lose, we lose, energy to the environment we take it on in different ways um, and that's okay and then that that's that's we we wouldn't be alive otherwise right so that, that's one of the implications i want to run here it's um it, it gets hard to tease out some of the by the way how does is this how it works is this a problem all the things we're describing aren't like flaws in the machine it's the damn machine yeah that, the that's machine. the way we we 
and, you know, not to get into the religious side of it, but, you know, from whatever time that we started as a species on this planet to now, we've, we have lived, you know, evolved in harmony with, with our environment. So that's a good thing. So if the first law by itself, you know, doesn't apply, what do we do then, right? Because the first law applies, but with those caveats. So we have to take into account the second law then, which talks about entropy. And I'm sure you guys remember, um, you know, discussions of entropy. I think it's, it's people get really, they get cross-eyed actually when you start talking about it and they go, oh, it's all about disorder. And I was like, oh, it's not really it either. It's actually a Lovecraftian um, deity too, but that's a different story. <laughs> a little bit of chaos goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the second law, again, is talking about the universe and that's the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Right. Because the universe is constantly expanding. So, um, you know, so... What does that mean then? You know, um, if if entropy is always increasing, um, you know, this is this is where we start talking about conversion of energy. We we're always losing some energy to the environment, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's because if we're becoming more, if we're becoming more more, I don't like to use the word disordered, um, um, but if we're becoming we're not more be more ordered. Right I mean, look, man, I, more, I have a kid in my yeah. home right now. I'm becoming more disordered. I guarantee it. It's okay. You can exactly. you can say that to my face. So, I won't be upset. So, but but as that energy is converted into into usable forms, whatever that version you take in, whether it's carbohydrate, protein, um, fat, alcohol, um, that is also used for energy. Um, when you convert it into usable forms of energy, some of that energy is lost to the environment. So why does that matter for this conversation? So for this conversation, um, it matters because each of the ways that we take in um, calories in the form of macronutrient, right? They each have their own enzymes and their own metabolic pathways to break them down. And each of those pathways aren't equivalent at all. Each of those, the the enzymes have different um, amino acid sequences, um, they're, they're different. They, they take different amounts of energy to build and maintain. So just from that, that standpoint, then, um, you know, where you, you know, calories aren't equivalent. Right. At the level of just just raw digestion, that, like yeah. even if they burn up to be the same thing, if the machinery it takes to process the thing, because I think that's what this conversation is implying that there's a, there's a cost of processing the material we take in, right? Like what's the difference between burning crude oil versus refined gasoline versus trying to put like an old dinosaur in your engine? Mm -hmm. Like exactly (laughs) a T-Rex in my V6. That would be interesting. It would sound amazing. Yeah. However, yeah, but there's a big difference there, right? Like if I try to put a tire, if I try to put an iguana into my gas, into my gas tank, aside from probably being arrested for some sort of animal abuse, it's just not going to run. No, it's not going to explode. The iguana will not explode. Yeah. It will right. not combust. Right. In order to extract the energy from that iguana, things have to happen in stuff. And if the things that have exactly. to happen in stuff incur a cost that is greater than the iguana, it's not going to combust. Now, with food, right, the whole point is, yeah, the, the, whole, the, the idea is that the cost to process the nutrient is less than the yield, right? Otherwise, it's not food. It's technically raw. Yeah, because... Exactly, because there's no there's no perfect conversion of energy into one form of another. There's always a loss of energy. Right, and right? Th- and that shows in some of the literature that shows like, um, what it costs whatever amount of energy it takes to process carbohydrate, but like protein, like protein takes work to burn. Just just to give a concrete example, like it takes your body a meaningful amount of energy. You actually have to invest a lot of resources just to burn down the steak you ate, just to make it into fuel again. Whereas if you like slug a, a diet, no, not diet Coke, if you sling down a Coke, that's just raw energy coming right through. As yes. far as yeah, exactly. So you're, you're, you're feeding coal straight to the uh, furnace there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so if all calories aren't equivalent and we always, we lose some energy to the environment, um, you know, every time we convert those, um, you know, how can we still make that same statement, you know, calories in equals calories out? But maybe it's the same equation. Maybe it's the same uh, theory with just a different conversion. So let's pretend for a second for every 100 calories of uh, of protein I eat, fine, it'll take me 30 calories to burn it. So I still get 70. Does that really change it or does it just make it harder? Why don't I just eat less protein then and eat more carbs? Because they're cheap to eat. 
Like, wouldn't those be reasonable conclusions off of this idea? I I guess so. Um, I mean, I I look at it a little differently. You know, it's the calories aren't equivalent. They can't be. Right. Um, you know, and we know that starving ourselves doesn't work, and calories are not equivalent. So, what's the missing piece then? Because something has to account for the body seems to respond then differently to these different fuel sources. Exactly. But, and I think here's a, a good point for us to um, break off for today and leave the audience with a little bit of um, mystery because uh, our, our next episode is going to go into more depth about what this, what this all means. So if, if a calorie isn't a calorie isn't a calorie, then how the body views the calories as they are ingested and processed and digested and whatnot makes all the difference. And that is going to be why that advice that we've heard so frequently doesn't really hold water. It sounds like this is a lot more complicated than we give credit for in the, in the most general sense. Yeah, it's it's always so much easier to reduce things to um, something simple. I'm just saying physics is a lot easier but, when you put it in ideal conditions. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you always run everything at standard temperature and pressure, you're always, you know. <laughs> yeah, and ignore, ignore friction <laughs> and wind resistance. Yeah, exactly. And the drunk operator. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Dr. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us on of the episode. We can't wait for the next episode. This is getting this is getting heavy, as Marty McFly would say. I think this is going to be great. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. And uh, we are going to continue on this uh, great conversation. So stay tuned to hear what can be done with this bad advice. Again, I'm Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante, talking about your body, your health, and how you can fix it. Well, and don't forget, for at least the next couple episodes, and Dr. Hirschberger. And Dr. Hirschberger. And Dr. Hirschberger. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.